Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Welcome, everybody. Happy New Year. Brand new year. Got at the box office. Are you ready? I guess you're not. I'll see you next week. Anybody ready for God at the box office? All right. So, I was thinking this week that we did this series for the first time in 2011. I honestly thought it would be an outlier. I thought we'd do one series on movies, and I'd probably never do it again. And then I think it was the next year I decided not to do it. I almost had a mutiny here at Grace Crossing Church. It was like crazy. So it's been now like 10-year anniversary since we've been doing God at the box office. And if you're newer to Grace Crossing, you might be wondering, what's the big deal? Like, why? Why does this matter? Why is it important? Why do we get excited about it? In this series, we are actually mining to find the meaningful moral message within modern media and culture. Now, you might even say to that, what's the big deal? Why? Well, we're doing it because we have seen it modeled. Do you know that that's precisely what Jesus did when he came? You know, Jesus' teaching ministry was built largely on culture. Like he rips things right out of culture and he actually uses them to, to direct people's hearts and minds to God. Those who walked with him, those who followed him, the early apostles, they just simply followed suit. Paul the Apostle was one who, as the first church planter, traveling throughout Eurasia, telling the gospel message, Jesus' life, crucifixion, and resurrection. And as he's planting these churches throughout Eurasia, he's using these cultural illustrations to point people's attention back to God. And so when he comes to to the ancient city of Athens in Greece... He does something that is both beautiful and he sees something at the same time that is truly disturbing. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, his companions, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all of the idols he saw everywhere throughout the city. So Paul comes to Athens And he doesn't see a community that is void of worship. In fact, he finds a community that is really super spiritual and religious. They've got idols and shrines all over the city. So he finds his way to the center of the city, to a place that the scripture calls the council. It's actually, uh, in the Greek, the Areopagus. It was a a debate forum of sorts where the who's who of the most educated in Greece would come and they would bring their ideas to exchange them with one another. And that's where Paul goes. And Paul has a message he wants to deliver at the council. Verses 22 and 23. Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For I was walking along, as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. Now, notice what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not condemn them. He doesn't criticize them. 
He doesn't call them a bunch of irreligious fools, right? No, he simply begins by validating and affirming the obvious. These are very religious people. Problem is they're ignorant and they're confused. In fact, they were so confused that throughout Athens, they had erected idols and shrines to every possible Greek God imaginable. They had put a shrine up for every one they could think of. And just in case they had overlooked one, they added one more shrine to the mix. He says this at the end of verse 23. One of your altars had an inscription on it to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about. Turns out, there was an unknown God and he had an identity. And Paul knew his identity. And Paul comes and says, that God that you're worshiping, that you don't even understand who it is you worship, what it is you're looking for in life, I wanna actually describe and tell you who he is. Now, listen and pay attention closely to the way that Paul explains God to them. Verses 24 through 29. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol. Now, Notice again what Paul doesn't do and what he does. Paul does not refer to the Old Testament scripture. Paul does not quote the Jewish prophets of old. Instead, what does Paul do? Paul uses their poetry and he uses their very own Greek poets to connect their hearts to the message of God. Brilliant. Brilliant and a little brazen. Because what Paul is understanding here is he's understanding his audience. He's saying, listen, I'm talking to people who have no understanding or clue about the Old Testament or about the Jewish prophets. But what they get is they get their poets. They get those that have written that they read. And I am convinced 
that if there was movies in Paul's day, Paul would have grabbed clips from movies to illustrate the gospel message. That's what we do in this series. In this series, we are actually connecting the gospel message to our culture. We are using our culture, in this case Hollywood, to actually turn our hearts to the message of Jesus Christ. So I want to begin our new series, God at the Box Office, with the very first movie that I watched in 2019. It was January, Kelly and I were on a flight. We were celebrating our anniversary and we were on a flight to Paris. And I was looking at the inboard, the onboard media on the flight and just scrolling through the options. And I came across this movie that I had heard about, but I had not yet seen. And it piqued my curiosity because it was billed as a true story about a British band from the 1970s and 1980s who I really liked at the time. They actually are a band that is known for a, a variety of music that still today is hugely popular in certain crowds. In fact, I'm just curious today how many of us in this crowd are familiar with songs like Another One Bites the Dust. Can I see your hand if you know that song? How about this one? How about We Will, We Will Rock You? How many remember that? How about We Are the Champions, okay? And then one of their real songs that at the time nobody thought would be a hit, but it became the title of the movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. So the movie begins where it ends, at the same point in time, July 13th, 1985. Do you remember what you were doing on July 13th? 1985? Any of you know what was happening in the music world on July 13th, 1985? It was a colossal event called Live Aid. It was a relief concert that was being done for starving children in Ethiopia for the famine that had taken place there. It was billed as a global jukebox expecting 1.5 billion people to watch this Concert that was taking place simultaneously, two venues, London and right here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Every band from the United Kingdom and the United States that was a band that was known was participating. But none of them were being paid for their performance. Live Aid in one day in 1985 raised $1.27 million in one single day. And so this band that had been together but had recently broken up decides to come back together and perform at Live Aid. And there's no doubt about it, you can even look historically today, it was the band that though they were considered the old band, the aging band, when they took the stage, they owned the show. They stole it, they owned it, everybody at Live Aid was engaged and the band's called Queen. Now in this movie, there are several scenes that I want us to look at. The first scene that I want us to look at actually introduces the band to us as they're introducing themselves to a new producer. And I want you to listen to how they describe 
themselves as a band. Take a look. You sure he said 12 o'clock? Yes, midday at the car. Don't be drunk. That's what he said. You look a bit nervous, Brian. John, I'm fine. Usually said for together. Just got to be cool. Wow. Wanker. I didn't know his fancy dress for it. I've got to make an impression, darling. You look like an angry lizard. <laughs> it's your best work. Very subtle. It'll fly away. <laughs> Can I borrow it for Sunday church? So this is Queen, and you must be Freddie Mercury. You've got a gift, you all have. So tell me, what makes Queen any different from all of the other wannabe rock stars I meet? I'll tell you what it is. We're four misfits who don't belong together playing to the other misfits, the outcasts, right at the back of the room who are pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. We're a family. But no two of us are the same. Paul. Paul Prenter, meet Queen, our new signing. Paul will be looking after you day to day. Pleasure. If I can get you on the radio, maybe I can get you on television. Top of the pops. Hopefully. And then? <laughs> and then, it's only the biggest television program in the country no one's ever even heard of yet. Look, I admire your enthusiasm. If it goes well, if it happens, I've got a promotional tour of Japan in mind. We want more. Every band wants more. Every band's not queen. So while this film actually focuses on the band queen, it really zeroes in on the front man, Freddie Mercury. He was known for his eccentric persona. He was known for his flamboyant stage presence. But he was most known for his four octave range in his singing voice. He was born with four additional incisors that gave him this wider mouth and he had this enormous singing range that made him a singing sensation. Now, he can hit high octaves falsetto. I was gonna do it for you this morning and do my best Freddie Mercury impression, but I decided otherwise. Now, here's the thing. Despite this guy's conflicted, complex life. There's no arguing with the fact that he was a creative genius and a musical entrepreneur. He seemed to know that about himself. But he also knew, seemed to know something else about himself. He knew his talents and his abilities, but he also seemed to know that he was out of step with mainstream. He just didn't fit. In fact, two things that I think are really prominent that he says that I think make a great connection for us today. The first thing he says is that we are a bunch of misfits. Playing for a group of misfits. The outcasts in the back of the room who also don't feel like they belong. We are misfits who really don't belong together. Now, when I first heard this on the plane, I thought of two things. I thought of the island of misfit toys in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Come on, you're all thinking it. The more I watch that movie, it is messed up, isn't it, emotionally? Like, like, I used to love that movie, and now I watch it with my grandkids, and I think that is the cruelest Santa that has ever walked the face of the earth. And those adult reindeer, man, they were so brutal on Rudolph. He'll never again play 
with us in any Rudolph games. And then, and then Donder says to, to, to Rudolph, no doe of mine is ever gonna be seen with a red-nosed reindeer. I mean, what's messed up? And then they're all banished to this island, right, of misfit toys. Okay. It's a great message to send to our kids, you know. But here's the other thing I thought of. When I thought misfit, I thought of Jesus. Jesus was a cultural misfit. Jesus was a religious misfit. He didn't belong. He didn't fit in. In fact, the introduction of his ministry came from John the Baptist, who was out in the wilderness wearing camel hair, eating rare and raw wild honey, right? I mean, these guys were absolute misfits. And then he puts together this collection of followers called disciples. They didn't go together. They didn't belong. They, they were completely out of sync with one another. And I think Jesus from the very beginning knew that what he had come to do was he came to reach every single misfit, every person who felt like we don't belong. We're out of step. And he wanted them to know, listen, there's a place of belonging for you in God's family. In fact, I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus came to grab this ragtag group of people as an illustration of the way that he was going to put together his church. Listen, if it were not for Jesus Christ, many of us would not be sitting here together today. There's very little we have in common. There's so much that makes us different and would separate us were it not for Jesus, who actually makes us together this collection of misfits that actually belong to one another. Which brings us to the second thing that Mercury said that I think was profound. He says, we're family. We're family. Later in the movie, they actually make that statement. We are family. We belong to each other. And that's enough. You know, have you ever wondered why the Bible calls us as the church God's family? Ephesians chapter 2 actually specifically tells us this. Now, you who are not Jewish are not foreigners or strangers any longer. In other words, here's what he's saying. You who see yourselves as misfits, you don't feel like you belong to God you don't feel like you deserve to be part of God's family. You feel like a foreigner and a stranger. But here's what I want you to know. You are citizens together with God's holy family. You belong to God's family. That's powerful. I think the reason that that motif of family is the most common motif we find when the Bible talks about the church is because the very same experiences we have in our biological families, we will experience in our spiritual families. There is going to be misunderstanding. There are going to be hurts. There are going to be times that we need to forgive one another. We need to put up and bear with one another. There are gonna be times that we've gotta overlook offenses or move into conflict to bring true peace into relationships. You might say today, that's not how my family of origin did it, and that's not how my family does it today. But I got news for you today. That is how God's family does it. 
You are part of God's family. And as part of God's family, you might feel like a cultural misfit, even a religious misfit, but you belong to God's family as much as I belong to God's family. And we've got to learn to do it God's way. And Ephesians 4 tells us how we do it in God's family. Do not be bitter or angry or mad. In other words, don't hold on to those things. Never shout angrily or say things to hurt others. So don't intentionally try to damage. If you do that in your family, that's just messed up. Families don't do that. Never do anything evil. Be kind and loving to each other and forgive each other just as God forgave you in Christ. And as you watch this movie, what, what I discovered is there was a lot of family dynamics at work in the band Queen. There was a lot of overlooking offenses. There was a lot of forgiving misunderstandings. There was a lot of putting up with one another. And even though they recognize we are family, here's what they said, no two of us are alike. That is God's family. We're misfits, but we're family. And yet no two of us are alike. The next scene I want you to watch it's a powerful scene. Let's take a look. Can't tell you how long I have waited for Farouk to bring home a nice girl like you. Farouk? Did Farouk not tell you he was born in Zanzibar? No, he did not. Oh, I thought Freddie was born in London. Oh, he was. At the age of 18. Shut up. Our family is Indian Parsi. Mom, 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 mom. A thousand years ago, the Parsis fled to India from Persia to escape Muslim persecution. Really? That's terrible. So why did you leave Zanzibar? We didn't leave. We were chased out with just the clothes on our backs. He was quite a good boxer, actually. Happy birthday to me. His opponents went for his team, always trying to punch the men. So how old is he? Mercury? No looking back. Only forward. So now the family name's not good enough for you. It's just a stage name. No, it's not. Changed it legally. Got a new passport and everything. Cash, how old are you here? Oh, I don't know. It was before Freddie went off to boarding school. I sent Farouk away to make a good Parsi boy of him. He was too wild and unruly. But what good did it do? Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. I come from London town. You can't get anywhere pretending to be someone you're not. Who'd like some cake? Fridays cake I go Hello? Just a moment. Freddie Mercury. Phone call. Quite like the sound of that. Freddie tells me that yes, you're sort of a scientist. Well, astrophysics, actually. Oh. Yeah. My father would have preferred it. When? But that's very clever. He's a dentist. Dentist? I was never a dentist. That's He's a, a dentist. He's a dentist. <laughs> I see. That's also quite clever, actually. Cash. What are you doing later? Homework. <clears throat> Just making conversation. What kind of music was he listening to back in those days? I'm going to give it a bit of season. Not like us, you know. Very good. I have an announcement. One of the A&R men from EMI saw us recording. 
gave our demo to John Reed. He looks after Elton John. Oh Mr. Reed wants to meet us and possibly even manage us. Oh, oh shut up. Joke. Oh. 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 Born Farouk Bolsara. Mercury was actually born Indian from Persian descent, but nobody in his life knew it. His closest friends were unaware of it. His bandmate was unaware of it. None of his band members knew. The young lady he eventually marries had never heard about his background, his family of origin, his ethnicity. It seems as though um, Mercury did everything in his life to distance himself from his true identity. In fact, going as far as actually legally changing his name from Baruch, Baruch Bolsara to Freddie Mercury. You get this sense that there is this growing disdain for his own family, his own ethnicity, and his own religious upbringing. His father eventually makes this statement to him, which is profound. You cannot get anywhere pretending to be somebody you are not. And yet, how many of us do that? I mean, think about how much of our lives are lived presenting a persona that isn't us. Living up to other people's expectations of us. Trying to perform. Trying to behave in a certain way. I think in, in a very real sense, every one of us here in this auditorium suffer to a degree from dissociative identity disorder. Dissociative identity disorder is characterized by someone that has more than one unique identities that are competing for power over a person's behavior. Now, when you look at the scripture, there is no doubt about it that we have dissociative identity disorder going on in our lives. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter eight. Here's what he says. Those dominated by the sinful nature Think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So we are dealing with conflict in our lives all the time. And that conflict lies in our identity, who we are. It lies in how we want other people so desperately to experience us in a certain way that may or may not be true of who we are. You know, I think back on my own ministry years early on, and I can tell you, I did not know who I was. And so I allowed other people to determine the way that I was going to minister 
all the way to the way I would speak, what I would do, how I would do it. I was simply trying to model myself after others. Why? Because I didn't really know. And I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And it was a mostly healthy spirituality that, that largely helped me to come to terms with beginning to understand and live a life of consistency, integration, where the person on the inside is living on the outside. And I am not two different people as best as I can. Now, here's, here's another way to say it. You and I all have a unique self and we have a false or pretend self. Our false or pretend self is simply an ego-driven persona that we create that actually defends our most ideal personality, the way that we want other people to see us or know us. Now, we're going we're gonna to go deeper into this later in our series, but, but suffice to say this this morning, here's another way to look at this. You have two selves. You have your born self and your born-again self. That's what the scripture's teaching. Your born self is a sinful self. And it's a selfish self. Your born again self actually is a self that is to be controlled by the spirit of God that allows us to make choices and live a life that's different than a, than, than a life controlled by the sinful mind. Listen, your born again self does not erase your born self. It redeems it, and it repurposes it for God's higher purposes. So God doesn't change our personality, but he takes what he has created in us, and he then redeems it by his spirit to make us a new person. I think Freddie Mercury struggled with the integration. He just simply didn't know how to integrate who he really was with who he wanted everybody else to believe he was. And despite his incredible musical success, relatively speaking, he was an emotionally conflicted guy. And most of the conflict that he experienced, I think is consistent with what author John Eldridge suggests, that all of us in life carry a wound. And that wound, for most, for the overwhelming majority of people, that wound comes from our dad certainly true in my case. That that emotional wound that we carry that only God can fill and heal as our Heavenly Father, I think Freddie Mercury carried it. I think what he really wanted was he wanted his dad's approval. You could see it in the scene when his dad is looking at the picture of him as a boy, as a boxer, and looking at who he had become. And thinking, how do, I, how do I consistently love this kid this way? And I think Freddie Mercury was starving for what only his dad could give him. We actually see it in this final scene that I want you to take a look at. It's a powerful scene near the end of the movie. Take a look. Wonderful to have friends. Matai. Jim made it herself. Thank you. Freddie, your favorite Freddie. I have to go, Mom. But you just got here, Peter. What do you mean, go? We've got to get to Wembley. Would you believe it? Jim's never been to a rock concert. 
That's true. Queen are playing at Live Aid. We're all doing our bit for the starving children in Africa. And nobody's taking any money. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Just like you taught me, Papa. Love you, bitter. Bye, Cash. Love you too, Mama. In fact, I blow your kiss when I'm on stage. <laughs> I think more than anything else, I think what Mercury longed for was an embrace from his dad. There's a six-word phrase that appears in this scene that actually appears two other times in the movie. The first two times we hear it, it comes from Mercury's dad. This time, it comes from Mercury himself. The phrase is the phrase that his dad had obviously instilled deeply into him. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. That's actually really good advice. It's really what his father wanted to see in his life. And I will tell you this morning, it's what our Heavenly Father longs to see in our lives. But here's the difference. You and I cannot will goodness. In other words, we cannot just will good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. It is actually a byproduct of God's love that flows deeply into us. And Jesus makes this point. Jesus clearly says, that, listen, if there's anything good going to come out of your life, it's going to come from a good root system. And if it's not a good root system, there's not going to be good fruit. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 16 through 18, you can identify them by their fruit. That is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. Here's what that's saying. You cannot fool other people into believing you're a good person by simply willing yourself to good deeds, good thoughts, good words. You may fool a few people for a while, but you certainly won't fool everyone, especially those closest to you. Jesus in, in chapter 12 goes on to add this. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. Here's the point Jesus is getting at. Your fruit actually reveals your roots. 
and your roots determine your fruit. So the whole of scripture's teaching is actually that we cannot simply by our own self-will make ourselves good people. But rather it is a manifestation of the goodness of God, the love of God flowing deeply inside of us. The Bible calls it the fruit of the Spirit. The Passion Translation captures that, Galatians chapter 5, this way. The fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions. I love the way it says it. Joy that overflows. Peace that subdues. Patience that endures. Kindness in action. A life full of virtue. Faith that prevails. Gentleness of heart. And strength of spirit. How are those things manifest in our life? They are manifest when God's divine love is actually flowing deep into the root system of our life. The deeper the root system of God's love is, the more those things are just simply going to come out of us. Good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. Now, if I were to summarize the entire movie with just one statement, Here would be the statement. In life, we make decisions. And then our decisions make us. As I watched the movie, that was the big theme that came out. That in life, we make our decisions, but then our decisions make us. Freddie Mercury died at the young age of 45 from AIDS. Now, I don't believe or think that that AIDS was a curse, but it was a tragic consequence. It was a tragic consequence of a series of really bad decisions. The summation of our life is a collection of decisions. What hangs in the balance between success and failure is determined by the decisions that we make in life. Proverbs chapter 14 says this, there is a way that appears to be right. But in the end, it leads to death. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, leads to death. Listen, we are making decisions and not every decision we make is gonna lead us in the right direction. Some decisions are dead ends. That's what that says. Some decisions, there, are, there is no life in that decision. But listen, I think the opposite of this is equally true. Let me read that verse in reverse. There is a way that appears to be wrong. But in the end, it leads to life. Jesus called it the narrow way. He said, there's a way to live. 
your life by making decisions that might seem at the time wrong to everyone else. But in the end, that decision will lead you to life. And those who choose the broad path, the broad way, the broad road, it ends very narrow. But those who choose the narrow road, the narrow path, in the end, it widely opens to life. Abundant life and ultimately eternal life. And so this morning, you come into 2020, there might be decisions that you're holding right now. Decisions that you need to make. I want to encourage you to bring God and invite God into those decisions. Now, I know that sounds pretty obvious, but you'd be surprised at how few people actually take time and make the effort to invite God into their decisions. In our leadership, we call it discerning God's will, discerning God's mind. We want to sit patiently before God and we want to hold decisions before him. Why? Because there's ways that appear to be right, but in the end, they don't lead you where you need to go. I want to encourage you, tomorrow night at one prayer, that is a great place to invite God into your decisions. In fact, we often think of prayer as communication. Let me give you another paradigm for prayer. Prayer is thinking deeply about something in the presence of God. It is actually meditating, contemplating, and decision-making in the presence of God. And one prayer is a great way to do that. Let God give you not just a one word for this year, for your life. And we believe God will faithfully do that if we come to listen. But also come and let God steer your directions because the Lord is the one who's leading us and guiding us. I'm gonna invite you to stand this morning with me. Bow your head, please, if you will, and close your eyes for just a moment before I pray. I'm wondering this morning if you're in this auditorium and you recognize today that you might be at a point in your own life where you're not really sure that you're on that narrow road that leads to life. Maybe this morning as you, as you stand here in this auditorium, you recognize that there are something that's missing in your life Maybe you feel you're out of step, not just with others, but you might even be out of step with God today. And this morning, you want to invite God into your life as you start this new year, and you want to make sure that your heart is at a good place as you lead into 2020, the first Sunday of the year, that you want to say, God, I want you to be at the center of my life, and I want you to lead and guide me as I follow you this year. If that's you with head bowed and eyes closed, would you slip up your hand as we pray together in just a moment? And I just, by slipping up your hand, you're offering your life to God. You're offering your person to God. You're saying, God, I wanna give you myself this year. Yeah, thank you, so many. Father, I just wanna pray for this body today, your church. I wanna thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you are the way you are the truth and you are the life that no one can come to the Father but through you. And I ask this morning, Lord, that as we 
think about this new year and we think about all of our decisions that we will make, God, those decisions are gonna ultimately make us. So help us to make decisions that are in line with your heart. Help us, God, to put you first in every way. And help us to make decisions that are both God-centric and then God-honoring so that our life can be pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for your presence this morning. Thank you for this time that we could gather and worship you as a bunch of misfits who are now part of a family called the family of God. Thank you that none of us are alike, but we're all a family. So we pray your blessing, Lord, over this family today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you all. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.